So both the cancer and the cancer treatments affect the ability to have children. Cancer causes many changes within the body that affect the ability of the ovaries and the testes to produce follicles and sperm in a proper fashion. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Leslie Apia. Leslie is a gynecologic surgeon and physician, and she's also the director of the Oncology, Fertility, Preservation, and Reproductive Health Clinic here at the James. And that's what we're going to talk about today, oncofertility, and some of the amazing advances being made that allow more and more young girls and women diagnosed and treated for cancer to remain fertile and give birth. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And first, before you tell us about what you do in the clinic, give us some background on this relatively new field of oncofertility that you're now specializing in and have have brought here to the James. Sure, absolutely. The term oncofertility was coined in the early 2000s by Dr. Teresa Woodruff, who is an ovarian biologist at Northwestern University. And the field bridges or brings together the disciplines of oncology and reproductive health. For decades and centuries, patients have been diagnosed with cancers. And because of advancements in treatment and early diagnosis, we have more and more survivors. And what we've learned is that these survivors are now experiencing the late effects of the cancer treatments. And so... With Some of these late effects include infertility, which affects a significant proportion of men and women who have been treated with cancer. And so the field of oncofertility or fertility preservation has grown to encompass at-diagnosis care as well as survivorship care for these patients so that we can optimize their fertility or the ability to have children after their cancer treatments. It's interesting the way you said that, that 40, 50, 60 years ago, when cancer treatment hadn't advanced to the stage it is now, people just didn't... They didn't survive. Yeah, they didn't survive, so that wasn't an issue. Now that the treatments and with immunotherapy and targeted treatments, so many more people are living and people who are diagnosed in their teens or early 20s are living and want to get back to a normal life. Absolutely. Many patients are obviously thankful for the longevity that they have been granted from their cancer treatments, but they want to live a full life. And there are so many effects of the cancer treatments, whether it be on cognitive or cognitive ability, the ability to um, function mentally, um, cardiovascular health, pulmonary health, um, just sensitivity of the nerves and the fingers, but then fertility, the ability to then have a family and, and enjoy survivorship to the fullest. What is it about cancer treatment, about perhaps chemotherapy and radiation and and the cancer itself that would impact a woman's ability to have children? So both the cancer and the cancer treatments affect the ability to have children. Cancer causes many changes within the body that affect the ability of the ovaries and the testes to produce follicles and sperm in a proper fashion. So even if you had either lung cancer or breast cancer, that would affect the, the things you just said, even though it's the cancer is not in that location. Absolutely. Our body produces many substances in reaction to the cancer that can affect oh, the organs okay. and the ability to, to function well. And then cancer treatments are directed mostly at dividing cells. And the cells within the ovaries and the testes are 
constantly dividing. And so they incorporate damage or they become damaged from the chemotherapy, which then results in death of those cells. Uh, So the chemotherapy that targets rapidly dividing cancer cells attacks all rapidly dividing cells, including ones that are are connected to reproduction. That's correct. Wow. So then, it's like a double-edged sword for women with either breast cancer or lung cancer or brain tumor. It's, it affects that area and their ability to ha- perhaps have children. Absolutely. And then we have therapies that affect resting cells. And these therapies are the stronger therapies that some patients require. Stem cell transplant, for example, is a treatment that Um, has significant or very high doses of chemotherapeutic agents that affect not only the dividing cells, but the resting cells as well. And so all cells in the body are affected. And so these patients are at even greater risk of infertility because they lose the reserve that they would normally have. Is there any way to put either a number, a percentage on it, on the number of women who are diagnosed with with cancer that that becomes an issue or or even the certain types of cancer that that lead to the the highest rates of that sure so we know that the incidence of infertility for children who have been treated with cancer is about 12% for females and 60 to 70% for males oh it's much higher for males it is yeah. it is and for Women who are in what we call the adolescent and young adult population, so ages 15 through 39, that population, the risk of infertility is about 30% after cancer treatment. So it's, it's, it's very significant. That's a lot of women. It's a lot yeah. of women. Okay. So what do you then do? Where, when do you, what do your, you and your team, how do you approach these women? What do you do? <laughs> In reference to your question about which treatments are most likely to result in infertility, patients who have sarcomas, uh, whether soft tissue or bone sarcomas, patients who have intracranial tumors, so brain tumors, and then patients who undergo stem cell transplant for any reason, whether that be for sickle cell, which is actually not a cancer, but patients with sickle cell disease sometimes require stem cell transplant, patients with leukemias that are not responding well to first-line treatments may go on to stem cell transplant, and patients with Hodgkin lymphoma can also undergo stem cell transplant. So that is probably the most uh, gonadotoxic or the the treatment that is most likely to result in infertility. Okay. And then what happens next? What do you tell women? We... The recommendation by the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network is that all patients diagnosed with a cancer who are within the reproductive age should receive a fertility consult prior to receiving any cancer treatments. We know that patients are able to be offered the greatest number of options before ever receiving any chemotherapy or radiation. So although the cancer itself may affect their fertility, we know that fertility is going to be even more affected by the cancer treatments. So we want to see patients at diagnosis so that we can counsel about the options to preserve fertility before they receive any treatments. Here at the James, that's a lot of women. That's not just you doing this, I I take it. Correct. That is a lot of women um, and men. So my 
The co-director of the Fertility Preservation and Reproductive Health Program is Dr. Lawrence Jenkins. He is a reproductive urologist, and he cares for the males who are diagnosed with cancer. We have an oncofertility or for fertility preservation nurse practitioner, Mary Caldwell. She is oncology trained and now has expertise in oncofertility, and she also sees these patients. We also have a team that includes our sexual health provider, Claire Postel, and Dr. Kristen Carpenter, and they help us to manage a lot of the sexual problems that these patients have in addition to the fertility issues. So between that group, the, the four of you, you give those consultations to every female patient, and Dr. Jenkins and his team do the same for all the men. That's correct. Well, again, that's a lot of people. And like, walk us through the options that women have, because like you said, these, if, if they need a stem cell transplant, and that's going to greatly increase their, their odds of infertility, what are their options, or what, what can women do to, to preserve their fertility? The most standard treatment available to women is embryo freezing or embryo cryopreservation. As of 2012, egg freezing also became standard of care, which was great news for us because not every woman has a partner with whom they want to produce an embryo, and not every woman is interested in using donor sperm. So for women who are unpartnered or who don't desire to use donor sperm, the being able to freeze eggs is a, a great option for them, and then in the future, they can decide with whom they want to create an embryo. That, that's if the treatment would then render them infertile. They have that option. But if th- there is no change, then they can proceed n- as normally. So it's like the backup. Absolutely. We stratify risk into three categories. We have treatments that are considered low risk or less than 20% likely to cause infertility, treatments that are considered moderate risk and fall into a 30 to 70% range of infertility risk, and then treatments that are high risk, so greater than 80% likelihood of resulting in infertility. So we recommend when we see a patient, depending on their risk stratification, to freeze eggs or embryos. Now, it takes two weeks to be able to do either, and the reason for that is that a woman would need to receive injections daily for about 10 to 12 days to allow the eggs in her ovary to mature so that we can extract the eggs. Approximately 12 days are required before patients can um, undergo egg retrieval. Wow. And that two-week window, that in some cases, can that be an issue that in an ideal world, you prefer the cancer treatment to start right away? Absolutely. What we know now is that most patients with most cancers will have those two weeks, but it requires close collaboration between the fertility preservation team and the oncologist. As soon as a diagnosis is made, if our team is called, we can typically see the patient and start the process while the workup is being completed. A patient typically undergoes biopsies, blood tests, they need to do some genetic testing, devise a treatment plan before they would receive the chemotherapy or radiation treatments. So within that time, we are able to go ahead and get the the process rolling in terms of freezing eggs. So if we collaborate closely, then the majority of patients will have that time. Now, to your point, patients with leukemias typically need to go to treatment quickly. And for that patient population, we have less options. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Leslie and we're going to discuss a a new surgical 
uh, option that is pretty cutting edge and pretty amazing. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Leslie Apia, and Leslie is the director of the Oncology Fertility, Preservation, and Reproductive Health Clinic here at The James. And that is the, that's the term you prefer, fertility preservation? So oncofertility is a term coined by Dr. Teresa Woodruff at the Oncofertility Consortium to describe the coming together of the different disciplines, oncology and fertility. Most patients aren't familiar with the term. And so when we're speaking to patients, the lay population and to some of our colleagues, we tend to use fertility preservation and reproductive health so that patients understand clearly the the service we are providing. And what you... What you told me previously, but you didn't mention when you talked about Dr. Woodward, she was one of your teachers, one of your mentors, and you learned from the the mother of this you know new area of cancer treatment. That is correct. Dr. Teresa Woodruff has been an amazing mentor to me and has actually mentored many men and women in this field and has been very instrumental in bringing the field to the forefront and kind of out of the, the fringe of what we do for these patients. Many different programs have developed across the country because of her leadership. Well, when you say many different programs have developed across the country, you've developed a couple. So you're, you know, you've taken what what she began and you've really helped spread the word and, and helped a lot of people. Absolutely. I've had the pleasure and fortune of being able to develop several fertility preservation programs over the course of my career. Um, the program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital was developed in collaboration between myself and an oncologist, Dr. Karen Burns, at the University of Kentucky Markey Cancer Center. I developed the Fertility Preservation and Reproductive Health Program in collaboration with Dr. Lars Wagner, the head of pediatric oncology, and Dr. Mark Evers, the head of adult oncology at the Markey Cancer Center. And again, here at the James, I have collaborated with Dr. Lawrence Jenkins and Dr. Miriam Lussberg. She is a breast oncologist and the director of the survivorship program at the James and has been very instrumental in moving the AYA or adolescent and young adult population forward in terms of their care. At Nationwide Children's, we collaborate with Dr. Lena Nahata, who is a pediatric endocrinologist and the director of the Fertility and Reproductive Health Program at Nationwide Hospital. Dr. Kate McCracken is a pediatric and ad- adolescent gynecologist with whom I work with closely at Nationwide. And so we have a partnership that is a both research, educational, and clinical partnership across the institution so that we can provide care for patients from birth through the menopause. It's kind of amazing to me how in 12 or 13 years, what something that really wasn't out there is now becoming standard and every major cancer hospital and comprehensive cancer center, this is an important part of what they do. That's absolutely correct. And to be a national comprehensive cancer network member 
it is required that a, that a fertility preservation and reproductive health program be present at that institution. And interestingly enough, the U.S. News and World Report uses that as a criteria to rank children's hospitals, whether they have a fertility preservation program or not. So it's extremely important to patients. It's extremely important to institutions. Yeah, and you don't think about it in a children's hospital when the kids could be seven, eight, ten years, but that's something down the road that will become important to them. Absolutely, and we've seen that through a lot of the large studies. The childhood cancer survivor cohort study has shown the effects of in, of the treatments on fertility, and it's it's very clear. And like in so many areas of of cancer research and treatment, there's some lots of new breakthroughs coming in, and I understand there's a, a relatively new surgical kind of option, if option is the correct word, and how you can help women preserve their fertility. So tell us about that. Ovarian tissue cryopreservation is an investigational treatment. Say that again, ovarian? Ovarian tissue cryopreservation or ovarian tissue freezing. Okay. This involves removal of an entire ovary or portions of the ovary through typically a laparoscopic or minimally invasive procedure that is bundled with another procedure that the patient may undergo. We remove the ovarian tissue or the ovary and then freeze the outer cortex or the outer portion of the ovary where all of the follicles or eggs are maintained. This freezing can uh, is permanent, so patients, the tissue can be frozen indefinitely, and when the patient is ready to use the tissue, that tissue is thawed and transplanted back, typically into the pelvis, and through regeneration of blood vessels through the, to the ovarian tissue, the ovarian tissue, for lack of a better term, wakes up, hmm. and the ovary starts to produce estrogen and eggs start to develop and mature. And women have been able to conceive spontaneously through natural intercourse or through in vitro fertilization. Interestingly, we are also able to transplant that tissue into the abdominal wall for some women for whom transplantation into the pelvis is not feasible. And then through stimulation of that tissue, remove the follicles through the abdominal wall, fertilize the egg in the laboratory, create an embryo, transfer the embryo into the uterus, and women are able to deliver a baby, a healthy baby. The success rate is about 32%, and so we know that it works. It's considered investigational still because we haven't had a large number of births yet, primarily because this technique has been used a lot in children who can't do any egg freezing oh, so and embryo freezing. if you do it at eight or nine, you're waiting 14, 15 years. Exactly. And you haven't gotten to that second part yet. That's absolutely correct. And so over the next five, 10 years, we will have even more well, data. How new is this? Like, how long has this surgery been going on? The first birth was in 2004. The first birth? Yes. Uh, the first birth of someone who went through this procedure. Correct. Okay. So the procedure itself has been performed since the late 1990s. But in terms of transplanting that tissue back, back because a patient needs to be five years past their treatment so that oh, we know okay. that they're not at a high risk of recurrence and then be ready to start a family. Now, have you done this procedure? I have done this procedure several times. I was able to open the research protocols both at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and the University of Kentucky. And so I've through these research 
programs, I've been able to perform the laparoscopic removal of the tissue, and that tissue is frozen. We have collaborated with our colleagues at Nationwide to perform this surgery there as well, and our protocol at the James will be open shortly. I ha- we have not transplanted tissue back because most of these patients have been adolescents who have undergone this procedure. Wow, that it, it's just amazing that, that this breakthrough is coming. So kind of what, since you've done the procedure, I'm trying to like picture it. Is it, we've, other people have told me about uh, microscopic surgery. Is this that type of surgery? So we make a small incision in the belly button, which is about the diameter of a nickel. And then two additional incisions that are about the diameter of a dime, right above the left hip and the right hip. The camera is placed through that larger umbilical incision, and then our instrumentation is placed in those lateral ports. And then through a five-minute procedure, we remove the ovarian tissue, place the ovary into a bag because we want to protect the ovary, and then bring it out through that larger umbilical incision. We then use suture to close the incision, put a little bit of skin glue on top, and then the patient is awakened and proceeds with chemotherapy within 24 to 72 hours. Wow, so this is a minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery. It is a minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery. And you did say that You've not yet gotten to the, the part B of putting it back. Is that the more delicate surgery or, or more difficult surgery? It is the more delicate surgery. You're dealing with very small pieces of ovarian tissue because we're not yet able to freeze an entire ovary because the freezing agents aren't able to transfer through the entire ovary. So we remove the outer cortex and freeze strips, which are about two centimeters by two centimeters. And so that tissue is smaller and that requires microsurgical technique. So the same sorts of incisions, but smaller sutures, smaller needles to transplant that tissue back. And tip, and really a patient should have that procedure performed at a center where they feel very comfortable transplanting this tissue. It's a very delicate tissue, and we want this procedure done correctly the first time. So is it going to be that some surgeons such as yourself would specialize in the first part of removing it and then micro surgeons perhaps would do the second part. That is likely. Wow. And so the the people that you've, the, the women or young girls that you've done this on, what ages were they in? And is that, is that the target audience for this younger uh, girls and women who don't have partners who it could be five, 10 years in the future? The youngest patient that we have performed this procedure on probably worldwide is probably about one month old. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there are young girls, unfortunately, wow. who receive really high doses of chemotherapy or pelvic radiation that is going to render them infertile. And so removing the ovaries as one month on average. Because they've not produced eggs yet. So that option isn't available. Exactly. Wow. And, and the, per- the, the little girl who was one month old, was she literally born with cancer? No. The cancer is typically diagnosed within uh, weeks of of life and then requires treatment. Wow. To be born and a couple weeks later, how would you diagnose someone with cancer that young? How would you find the symptoms? You know, it depends on the location. If it's an abdominal uh, tumor, typically the the belly or the abdomen is distended. Uh, Um, 
But more than likely, the child is just fussy, right? And um, we're unable to console the child, and then that leads to the parent Lots bringing the tests. child in and then undergoing testing. So that's typically, on average, the patients who undergo the ovarian tissue cryopreservation are a little bit older, 12, 13. Um, and so those patients are the ones that we have most of the tissue stored. We do have some young women who are 18 and older who could but in theory, freeze eggs or embryos, but because of the duration, the proximity of the time to chemotherapy, have had to undergo ovarian tissue Oh, so there's an option. For women that it's really important to start your treatment, like tomorrow, this is an option so you can still um, have children later. Absolutely. Would you ever do both, like um, freeze eggs or embryos and do the surgery to sort of have more options later? We do. We have done a procedure where we stimulate the ovaries, ret- remove the, the eggs for freezing, and then proceed with removal of the ovary. Yes, so that has been done in conjunction. What we typically try to do or what our aim is, is that when we are removing the ovary, we can extract some of the eggs that are naturally going to kind of fall off or kind of um, separate from the ovary during that uh, surgery, and then mature those eggs in the lab and then freeze it. So that's called in vitro maturation. So we remove the eggs that are kind of floating in the surface of the ovary during the ovarian tissue cryopreservation minimally invasive surgery, remove those eggs, freeze them in the lab. And so that that really is where we want to be. So in the you're still at the, in relatively early parts of your career. And even in the past 10 or 12 years, there's been some tremendous breakthroughs. What's going to happen in the next 10 or 12 years? We hope that in the next 10 to 12 years that we will not have to remove an ovary, that we will be able to remove immature eggs from the ovary without Uh the two weeks of stimulation, take those eggs into the lab, mature those eggs, and then freeze them or create an embryo through fertilization. There have been advances in that area at the Oncofertility Consortium and through other investigators throughout the country and worldwide, but we are not quite there where we can offer that as standard of care. But there have been significant advances, and that is really going to be the gold standard for us. If we can, it will be a game changer for women. It will be amazing. So what's it been like for you when you, um, treat and counsel and, and work with a woman, a young girl or someone in their twenties. And then at whatever time later, they have a child that would, you know, 25 years ago, that just wouldn't be possible. What's that like when, people are being born into this world that you had a a role in that. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience and a wonderful feeling because having cancer or being diagnosed with cancer is such a life altering and, uh, a life-altering experience, and it changes women. It changes the f- the family structure. It changes your relationship with other people, and so to be able to then reproduce and have a child is just an amazing experience. We all, from you know, to ages two, three, and four, think about our future and what it will be like to have children, and we name our children, and we we decide what we want our children to become. And so to have that taken away from you after decades of of having this longing because you're diagnosed with cancer is such a tragedy. And I think it's so unfair for us to send the message that our patients should just be thankful that they've survived their cancer and they should be thankful that they're alive. Yeah, that was what it was like. 
20, 30 years yes, ago. Now, exactly. we're such a, a better place. That's right. We, everyone, we're, they're thankful, but they want to live a full yeah. life. And for many, that involves having a child. And so to be able to partner with a patient in that is just an amazing experience. And I, I will say that it goes even beyond fertility, just maintaining sexuality, maintaining a feeling of femininity and a feeling of overall well-being as a woman or a man after cancer treatment is equally important because not everybody wants to have children and ultimately not everyone will be able to have children after the cancer treatment. But then how do you function with your partner and have a satisfying sexual relationship and just feel well. That is equally important. And we need to spend as much time doing research in symptom care of the reproductive organs as well as fertility, because we don't have a lot of treatments to help women who no longer have ovarian function and are experiencing premature menopause. For a woman to go through menopause at age 30 or 35, it's devastating. Because it changes, of her cancer treatment. Because of yeah. the cancer treatment, it's devastating. It changes her relationships with people, and we want to, to do better in that area. It seems like that area of survivorship and quality of life is really on the forefront now, and you and others are yes. really making some big gains in there, but there's still a ways to go. There is. And Dr. Miriam Lusberg, again, with the Survivorship Clinic, who specializes in symptom management of patients, particularly with breast cancer, patients with breast cancer really suffer in terms of symptom management because we typically give estrogen for that and we can't do that in a patient with breast cancer because it's contraindicated yeah. because of their type of tumor. They suffer particularly. I, I think you've given us a topic for a future podcast. So if Miriam Lusberg, if you're listening to this, I'll be calling or emailing you soon. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you, Leslie. Thank you for sharing all these great things that you're doing and the great strides and some of the exciting news that's coming about in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here. This is such an important topic for patients as well as providers to hear and really understand the challenges that this patient population faces. We need more research dollars to be put forth. We need more programs to develop across the country. We need buy-in from the institutions that this is important and that we need to have the staff and the providers who can take care of this patient population. So I appreciate what you have done by developing this podcast on this topic. And I think with leaders and pioneers like you, you're going you're gonna to get there. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.